Amen. Amen. Pursuing victory this morning. Pursue victory this morning will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, the majority of that chapter, but our focus will be 50 through 58. That's where we'll be looking this morning. Uh, we've been in this concept of pursue now. This is our third week. Uh, it's kind of our theme. It's kind of our word uh, for the year. Has it become the popular thing to do? Kind of our focus is to pursue. Uh, we talked about the first week, that being a word that means to chase after and to capture. The word used there in the Greek is dioko. And the verse that we were talking about that's kind of setting this theme for us is from Philippians 3, the last part of 13 and 14. But one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. One thing I do is pursue what God has called on my life. That is our theme for the year, is that we are focused and pursuing after Jesus, after the calling he has for us individually, after the calling he has for us as a church. Last week we talked about pursuing justice, uh, that yes, God will punish wrong, uh, but that God's justice is upside down most of the time from the world's justice, that the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and, and, uh, and all of those types of things. We hit that up pretty, pretty in-depth last week. If you missed that, go back and listen to that. And this week, again, we're talking about pursue victory. Today we're talking about pursue victory. Now, I have shared this truth with several of you. Um, many of you know that I have a, a strange affinity for a fellow on uh, Twitter. His, uh, his handle, his Twitter handle is the wrestling pastor. Okay? The wrestling pastor. Now this guy, um, some of you may know his father. His dad is Herb Revis, a uh, pretty well-known preacher in the Southern Baptist world. Great, phenomenal evangelist and preacher. This is his son is actually who this guy is. He's the, he's the student pastor at their church in Jacksonville, um, Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, he basically just puts out funny tweets that deal with um, the strange things that happen in church, kind of the, I guess, the, uh, the cliches, as it were, in church. And he uses wrestling giffies to explain uh, or to make fun uh, or to have a good time with those, those truths. So... Things like this, just for example, okay? The Holy Spirit watching you read conspiracy theories instead of your Bible. Okay, this was, this was just a couple of days ago where he tweeted that. Uh, another one, when you put your hope in politics instead of Jesus. Things like that, okay? So the Giphy itself is explaining what's happening according to the, the caption of the, of the tweet, okay? Um, this one will hit a little too close to home for some of you, but that's okay. Pastor, I know the service is about to start, but I wanted to complain about the temperature in the sanctuary. Okay? The thing about that one, you have to notice the reversal. The person's coming to get him, and then he reverses and doesn't let it happen. Drops him on his head. Pretty funny. Okay? That, that subtle reversal is important to the truth of that tweet. Probably my all-time favorite of all the tweets that the wrestling pastor has put out is this one. When you tell a class of, full of sweet senior adult ladies that you're moving their Sunday school room... Okay, that's hilarious. That's way too close to the truth for most churches. Now, I will say in my six years of being on staff here that we have moved one of our senior adult lady classrooms, and it was not a problem whatsoever. We had a conversation about it, and everything was fine. Nobody took a swing at anybody. But that is funny because you do hear those 
types of stories. And not to exclude myself or other preachers, and he definitely does a good job of making fun of us too since he is one. This one is uh, when the introduction to the sermon is too long. So, make sure that I make fun of myself a little bit and at the, a reminder to get going and a reminder to not spend too much time on the, <laughs> on the introduction. Moving right along. So we're talking about pursuing victory today. Okay? Now, I'm not advocating that you watch professional wrestling. Okay? I never watch it anymore. I did as a kid growing up, and most of the things he posts are, are old wrestling things that, that, that just connect with me because they're funny. Um, but that's not the point. The point is not advocating that nowadays it's ridiculously terrible. Um, so that's not what I'm advocating. The point is, what's the underlying thing that everybody knows but hardly ever talks about when it comes to professional wrestling? What is it that we all know that nobody ever talks about? The outcome's predetermined, right? For those of you that are wrestling fans that don't want to know that, that's the truth, I'm sorry. It's not that wrestling is, quote, fake, they're hitting each other. That's combat. I mean, things are happening. They're getting hurt. They're sore. They break things, all that type of stuff. But the outcome is predetermined, okay? The outcome of each and every single match that they perform, it's a performance. It's already predetermined who's going to be the victor at the end of the match. They just have to go through the rigmarole of getting it done, okay? So with that in mind, that idea, the outcome predetermined, we're going to talk about pursuing victory today. Now, we're looking at... First uh, Corinthians, okay? First Corinthians, one of Paul's first letters. It was written about uh, A.D. 55, okay? Paul started the church in Corinth, uh, and then just a few years after that, he's writing this letter uh, to, the, to the church at Corinth. Uh, and according to God Questions Ministries, the purpose of this letter is that a few years after leaving the church, Paul has heard uh, the, the disturbing reports about the Corinthian church. He's heard things like they're full of pride. They were excusing or allowing sexual immorality even within the church itself. Uh, spiritual gifts were being used improperly. There was a rampant, rampant misunderstanding of key Christian doctrines. So Paul wrote this first letter to the Corinthians in an attempt to restore the Corinthian church to its foundation. And we know that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, and that's where he is headed. 1 Corinthians is a phenomenal letter that we get a lot of things that we use a lot, like 1 Corinthians 3.3, that jealousy and quarreling are acting like mere worldly men, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20, that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not your own. It was bought with a price, so we should honor God with our bodies. 1 Corinthians 10.31, do it all, whatever it is, do it all for the glory of God. One of my personal favorite verses. Of course, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, right? The love explained. I don't know if there's been a more quoted chapter in, in all of the New Testament uh, than chapter 13 where love is explained. And then we're getting to kind of the conclusion of the letter. But right before Paul concludes this letter to the church at Corinth, he hits on this theme that he hits on in this chapter that kind of ties it all together. It kind of brings it all together, all the things he has talked about in the letter, and all the things that will make what he has said so far make sense. So that's what we're picking it up there in verse 50, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit corruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. 
We will not fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whew, amen. That's a mouthful of unbelievable truth. Hard to take in truth. Kind of confusing truth if you just read it at first glance. It's like corruptible and incorruptible and moral. And what, is, what is going on? What is Paul really, really saying? Paul's saying, listen up. <laughs> He's saying, listen up. I'm doing my best to explain to you the mystery of the resurrection. The mystery of the resurrection to come for all the believers in Jesus. It says, some, when Jesus comes back, will still be alive. Some will be asleep in death. But either way, boom, at the trumpet sound, in a flash, in the blink of an eye, Jesus is back, the dead are raised, and we are instantly changed into our heavenly selves with our heavenly bodies. Paul is making that very, very clear. To many of us, to many of you, that truth is something that's settled, that we will be raised with a body in eternity with Jesus. But that truth was not so with the Corinthians. That was one of the things that they were fighting against, was whether or not a bodily resurrection was going to take place. And Paul says, because of our, our corrupted, our corrupted sinful flesh, we cannot inherit from God, be passed down from God, be given from God through His grace what is incorruptible, what is indestructible. So we will get new bodies. We will get new bodies that, whoa, sorry about that. There we go. We will get new bodies uh, that are that cannot be corrupted and cannot be destructed. But make no mistake, we will have bodies. That is the point that Paul is driving home. There will be a bodily resurrection of believers in Jesus. In other words, we will not just be spirits floating around. Okay? Again, this is a truth that many of you have settled. But understand this truth. We will not just be spirits. Yes, our soul is saved, but our soul is saved to be returned to a body, a heavenly new body. We will have a bodily existence in eternity with God. He says, hey, bodily physical resurrection is key to your understanding and to your hope. It is the victory, Paul is saying all throughout this chapter. He says, hey, we've got to fight in this life. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to hurt. But stand firm because the fight is fixed. 
We've got a fight to fight in this life. We've, we have got a calling that God has put on our life, something that we will and must struggle through. But God says through Paul, remember that the fight is fixed. The victory is already won. Death is defeated. Victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. My favorite hymn. I love that song and I love that truth. And that's hopefully the truth that we get implanted in our hearts and minds this morning. Now, that's the end, okay? That's the end of the chapter. Paul finishes the point he had been trying to make for an entire chapter. So, like wrestling, we started with that, that the outcome is predetermined. But, earlier in the chapter, Paul first starts laying this out. So, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. He says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold the message I proclaim to you, unless you believed for no purpose. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. He finishes there, chapter 10. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and His grace toward, towards me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. So backing up there into verse 7 and 8. Paul says, hey, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel that I received and it's the same gospel that I shared to you. And that gospel is very simple. Jesus died for your sins. Like God's word, the scriptures, said he would. He was also buried. And then he was resurrected on the third day. Again, according to God's word, the scriptures. Like he said it would. He said he appeared to Peter. He appeared to Cephas. And the twelve apostles. And to more than 500 people. I love that verse. I love that verse. Think about that. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Okay? And he says that most of these 500 people, over 500 actually, but over 500 people, but at least 500 people, most of them are still alive. As Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, over 500 people that saw Jesus resurrected with their own eyeballs and spent time with him are still alive. What does that mean? That means that once they received this letter, then people could very easily go and verify whether or not this actually took place. Over 500 people saw with their eyes Jesus. If this were not true, there is no way that this letter would have survived. The instant someone goes and finds one of these people, and they say, oh, I don't know, that Paul guy, whew, I, don't, I don't know what he's wrong with him. I didn't see that. The letter gets crumbled up and thrown out. But instead, people stake their lives 
on that truth because it was truth, a verifiable fact at the time of the letter of this writing, time of the writing of this letter, a verifiable fact. It says most of these people are still living, but some of them aren't. But the ones that are, just go ask them. Go ask them if I'm telling the truth. And he says, and then last of all, he appeared to me. He came differently to me. I became apostle, an apostle a different way. And I'm unworthy to be an apostle. Why? Because I tried to kill the church until I saw Jesus. And then everything changed. That's what Paul says. Everything changed when I saw Jesus. I was trying to kill the church. And then he literally appeared to me, spoke to me, gave grace to me, and he changed me forever. And because of what I did, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even be allowed to work for God. But I am because he's allowing me. That's what Paul is saying here. He goes on there in verse 10. He says, we proclaimed Christ died and that he was resurrected for your sins. And that is what you believed, Paul says. Or that's at least what you said you believed. And he continues there in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how come some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So now we get to the point that, Paul, of, that Paul's trying to make. This, we know that that is why he is saying this, because some people in the Corinthian church were saying there's not a resurrection. There is no resurrection of the dead. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation, us saying to you that he has, is without foundation. And so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Paul's saying, hey, look, and you can't have it both ways. Either Christ was raised, and therefore we will be raised, or Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then you and me and everybody else is wasting our time. We are wasting our time. Our faith is without foundation, Paul says. He says you can't have both. Jesus was, and we will be, or we won't be. You can't have both. Not to mention, Paul says in those verses, not to mention that we, you're saying that we blaspheme against God. You're saying that we have performed an act that is deserving of death. Capital punishment for blaspheming God. Putting something on God's name that is not true. Calling God something that he is not. Saying God did something that he did not. You're saying that we should be killed, that we, co- we committed a capital crime, capital offense crime, by saying that God did raise Jesus from the dead. Saying he didn't do something that he did. So, Paul's saying, he's laying out the case here. And he continues in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Those who said that they followed Jesus but they've died now, they're just dead. If we, have to put, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone, Paul tells Corinth. And the Holy Spirit now tells you and I. He says, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. There's no point There's no reason. 
It's, it's like Solomon says. 38 times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says about life without God. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Life is meaningless. Life is pointless. Unless there's something more to it. Everything is meaningless. Everything is hopeless. Unless, Paul is saying, there is a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no reckoning. There's no judgment. There's no reward. There's no eternity. If there's no resurrection, then then evil in this world just gets to go unchecked. And the good, the righteous acts of this world, they just we just suffer and die for nothing. What's the point? If there is no resurrection, Paul is telling Corinth. And you as a follower of Jesus, you know that. But we need to be reminded of how powerful that truth is. Paul goes on to explain um, something about the, the resurrection and that it's possible and, and the necessity of it but through the rest of the chapter. But with the idea of it being vanity of all vanities without the resurrection. Back to our original verse. It's all vanity, it's all vain, it's all worthless, it's all pointless. But, that's the key word there. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Greek there is a present tense of the verb, which just simply means that he continually gives us victory. He gives us victory at salvation, and he continues to give us victory throughout our life, and he will continue to give us victory. It is a continual, everlasting, never stopping, always going to happen, always certainty, a fact that God has given us victory. Victory over what? Victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the grave, victory over Satan, victory over evil, all of it. God has and is continuing and will forever continue. That's what the word there is saying, giving us the victory through Lord Jesus. So, what do we do with this truth? Many of you know that. Many of you tuned me out for the last ten minutes as we talked about that. But what do we do... How do we live forward with that truth? Because knowing it and doing something with it are two different things. You can know a lot about God's Word, but unless you're putting God's Word into action, then whoop de do. So what do we do? He goes on to tell us there. Stand firm. He says, therefore, right? Therefore what? Therefore, because we have this victory over death, over sin, over Satan, over evil, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand Firm, be not moved, be immovable in your hope, be immovable in your trust, be immovable in your life, because the end game is decided. The end of the game is already decided. The question is, how well are you going to play the game? But the end of the game, the victory, it's predetermined. We already know what's going to happen, so stand firm. Let no one confuse you, talk you out of, if they can talk you out of it, talk you into it then they can talk you out of it let no one ever let you swerve or or waver from the truth and the fact that is that jesus christ was raised and therefore his followers will be raised so stand firm then it says fully work always give yourselves fully to the work of the lord i like that one you know what i don't like people that won't work 
I struggle with that. I struggle having grace in that. I'll be perfectly honest. Paul says that in this truth, you and me and all the church should give ourselves over fully to the work of the Lord. Fully as in, fully as in effort, fully as in devotion. Both of those things tied up in what Paul is saying. We should, we should work, and then we should work some more, and then we should work some more. And in our heart, we should desire to keep on working some more because of the truth that is the grace of God. That we have eternal life with Him because of what He has done for us. Not because of what you have done. Not because of what I have done. Anything you and I have done compared to God's righteousness is filthy, filthy rags. Which is why we should give ourselves fully to the devotion of doing God's work. Because it's not about gaining His approval. It's about making His name known. It's about making His kingdom grow. It's about doing what you were put on this earth to do. And as the great theologian Zach Stanley said, and I put in my notes two years ago to FCA Devotion, doing what God made you to do will bring you the greatest satisfaction you will ever have in this life. And then the last thing there, he says that it's not in vain. How can you give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? Fully in devotion, fully in effort. Because he's reminding you, he's kind of, you could, you could almost, if you were going to hyperlink that, you could hyperlink that back to Ecclesiastes because it's not all vanity. It's not all pointless. It's not all worth it, worthless. It is worth it. It is not in vain. Preaching, teaching, ministering, and living the gospel has utmost eternal purpose. And that is because of the resurrection. Because there will be a final judgment. Sacrifice has purpose. Love has purpose. So, what do we do at this church? What do we do at this church? How do we say it? We say we fight suffering in the world for the gospel of Jesus. Everything we do, everything we do, everything we do, we are trying to fight suffering in this world for the gospel of Jesus. It's why some of you give clothes to people that need clothes. It's why we have a food pantry. It's why we spend time in discipling those in Hopefully when Sunday school starts back really, 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 really soon. Right? It's why we do all that stuff. Because sin causes destruction, suffering, pain. But we know the end game. But until the end game, we've got a lot of fighting to do. For the gospel of Jesus. Not for your name. Not for the name of this church. It's not so people will say, man, damn, well, First Baptist Church, they're really getting after it. They ain't got nothing to do with it. It's for the name of God. So His name is glorified. Say, so how? How do we do that? <laughs> We're going to keep coming back to it until it's implanted in my head and your head and our hearts and we actually are doing it. We are sincere, we serve, and we sacrifice. And then we teach others to do the same thing. That's discipleship. We are sincere, we love, we care for people, for each other especially, and also for people outside the church. We serve, we, we do things, we work fully for God. And we sacrifice. Sacrifice costs things. Sacrifice costs time, it costs effort, it costs status, it costs money. Sacrifice costs things. And we do that and we teach others. In other words, we disciple. That's what Jesus said at the end of Matthew. We just disciple. We teach others to observe what Jesus has done. We do them. We teach others to do them. And we continue doing that. We fight 
suffering because anytime you're fighting sin, you're fighting suffering. Every time a soul is saved to eternity with the Lord, there's a little bit less suffering taking place in this world. And we do all that with the understanding that we are fighting a fixed fight. Now, I would not get into the ring and fight one of those big steroid-up muscle-headed freaks unless I knew the outcome of the fight. It may hurt a little bit, but if I knew how it was going to end, it'd be one thing. Now, if I didn't know, then I wouldn't. It's like when people say, I'd fight Mike Tyson for a million dollars. Well, somebody else is going to be spending that money because you're not going to make it. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Not going to make it. It's a very foolish thing to say, right? The fight is fixed. The end game is known. What is the end game? All the followers of Christ. The ones before him that were looking forward to him and the ones since him that have seen and known through his word what he did and what that means for our lives. All the followers of Jesus will be resurrected in a body to spend eternity with no evil, with no pain, with no destruction, with none of the things of this world that makes this world barely able to take sometimes. That's all gone. The fight is fixed. That's how you can continue to fight when it seems hopeless, when it seems pointless, when, it's, when it hurts, all of those things. The end game is known. We are fighting a fixed fight. So because of that, we should pursue Jesus. Pursue His calling that He put individually on your life. Pursue Him, but pursue Him in victory. Catch that? We're not pursuing victory Victory's already won. We're pursuing him in victory. We're pursuing this fight in victory. The war has already been waged and won. Praise God. Thanks be to God for that truth. So pursue, pursue, pursue parenting in victory. Pursue parenting in victory the way God's called us to do it. Pursue school, students. Your life in school and the things God puts in front of you. Your desire for your education. Pursue it in victory. Knowing that all the things you're doing has a purpose. An eternal, never-ending purpose. Pursue marriage the way God intended it to be pursued. Marriage is not about fluffy feelings. Marriage is about two really, really imperfect, sinful people committing to each other no matter what. You take the leaving off the table. And when you take the leaving off the table, then something special can happen between two people when they commit their lives to each other forever, no matter what. Pursue marriage and victory, not from a position of defeat. Pursue your work, your employment, and victory. Pursue sharing the gospel in victory. It's not your job to save people. It's not my job to save people. It's our job to share that they can be saved. And the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Pursue discipling the saved in victory. Pursue comforting the mourning. As we know, many are. Many are in mourning. Pursue comforting them in victory. That the pain that they and we feel right now is temporary. It's temporary. Pursue 
comforting them in victory. Because in eternity, that pain won't be there. Pursue helping those that the world forgets in victory. Abound in the work of the Lord in victory. The fight is fixed. The outcome is known. Jesus wins. Death, sin, Satan, evil, and hell, they all lose. Amen. They all lose. So if you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in that truth, that verifiable, documented truth, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of all, then make today the day of salvation. Amen. And if you have placed your faith in that, then live your life in and from a position of victory, knowing that all of it is worth it, because God makes it all right, all of it, in the end. We thank Him for that truth this morning. We'll have a time of invitation here. the guys and gals are going to lead us in one last song. It's a time that you can pray. It's a time that you can worship through song. It's a time that you can reconcile with another human being in this church. Because God says, before you bring me a sacrifice, make sure you're reconciled to each other. It's a time that you can come down and say, hey, we're, we would love to join the church and be part of fighting suffering in this world for the gospel of Jesus. It's a time that you can get saved and make that public to the world, to this church first. Whatever may be the case during this song, Pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you to do what it is you need to do. God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the truth that it is to live in victory, God, to pursue what you have for us in your victory, through your grace and your grace alone, God. We thank you that faith in you perfects us in eternity and the resurrection to come, God. We thank you for for the hope that it is to know that we will be resurrected in you and for you and for all eternity, God. We thank you for that truth this morning. Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray with deep concern, God, for those that are hurting right now, that are mourning, that they would be comforted and that we would do what we can to comfort them, knowing that we're comforting in victory, that the that the morning is temporary. <laughs> but the everlasting celebration that we'll be having, God, makes this temporary pain and suffering just a blip, God. Thank you for the reminder of that truth this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us, unworthy sinners. Thank you, Lord. Pray that you would put a work in front of us and that we would do the work you've called us to for your name's sake and for nothing else. And pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.